We are in Colossians chapter 1. If you're in the church Bibles, I think I mentioned it was page, uh, there's a, on the back of that construction, which you want to you hold on to that, you want to stick that with a magnet to your fridge, remember those opportunities, and uh, on, the, on the back side, there's room to take a few notes. If you're a real note taker and you like to take notes on both sides, well, we're not going to be able to do that. But page 983 in Colossians chapter 1, and here, I, I've entitled this section, Finishing Well. God does have a glorious finish, and, he, and, he, and he, he lays that out for us. The, the finish that he has intended, and he, and he gives us a warning, and he extends to us an invitation. So there's a warning, and that's some of the route instructions. Stay to the right, he says. Don't be drawn away from your true hope. It is your true hope, your faith in the gospel, that is going to bring you to God's finish. The purpose of our reconciliation, the purpose of our reconciliation in this true hope is to be gloriously presented before God in his presence. Paul talked about that in, this, in the earlier well, in the opening verse that I read, you were enemies, you were alienated, you were apart from God, you were separated, you were at war. You were hostile in your mind and the way that you thought, I don't need God, I've got this. And in the things that you do. But you, who were once enemies, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Well, first of all, before we even get to the purpose of that, well, no, no, let me read just a little further. Let's grab the purpose so that the question actually has more weight to us. He, he has now reconciled in his body. Jesus has brought us back, restored us into relationship with God in his body of flesh by his death for us in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach, above or beyond any charge or claim that lingers against you, there is nothing, nothing can stick. That's God's purpose. You have been reconciled, you have been restored to him in order to be in his presence, and in his presence abundantly. Now, before we unpack that in his presence a little more, I want to go back to an implied question that's there. Are you reconciled? You see, you see, what he says about being presented is assuming the first part of it, which, that you who were alienated, he has now reconciled. And it's a past tense. It's a he has done this. God has reconciled. God has reconciled to himself those who believe in Jesus, those who believe in the Son of God's very real human true death for him. And so the question I don't want to assume this morning, I don't want to run on to the good stuff assuming that everybody here is in fact reconciled. Everybody has in fact been moved from being contrary to God, going my own way, and rather has been restored into right relationship with God, to have harmony with Him, to have peace with God, to have that fullness of relationship with Him, walking with Him in His ways, not because I have to, but because I've been restored in relationship and I want to. 
You know, that itself is, is, is actually an interesting point. My wife is away for a few days visiting her dad in Southern California. And so at, at home, it's me and the cat. And, well, the cat stays out of the way mostly, so that's not a problem. But um, this morning I got up, and Julie and I have a deal. We have a bargain. Whoever showers first... And then the other one showers second, and whoever showers second is the one who takes the squeegee and cleans and wipes down the shower walls. Wipes the shower walls, wipes, takes the squeegee, wipes down the glass, and many of you husbands are nodding dutifully. Yes, you've got that deal too, I see. Okay? I don't really care about water spots in the shower, but Julie does. And so, I dutifully, if I'm the second in the shower, I take the squeegee and wipe down the walls and wipe down the glass and we're all good. It's a peaceful, harmonious relationship, but Julie is away. Julie's been away for a few days. Julie will be away for a few days. And so this morning, I was the first and the last to use the shower. And guess what? There was some inner turmoil. (laughs) And yet... I squeegeed the walls and I squeegeed the glass. And had I not, she would not know. (laughs) The voice from the congregation says, yes, she would. (laughs) Maybe I could have got away with her for a day and squeegeed them tomorrow. But I did it anyway. Not because I have to. Not because it's required. It's not part of our marriage contract. But because I love her. And so we walk with the Lord in his ways because he has reconciled us and restored us to peace. And I want to ask you this morning, are you reconciled? All of us here know what it is to go our own way instead of God's ways. All of us know what it is to turn inward to serve ourselves instead of yielding ourselves to our maker and our creator. All of us know that. And yet, have you been brought back into right relationship with God? A a separation that began with Adam in the garden and is the reality of all humanity. Have you been restored? By faith in Jesus, who loved us, who gave himself for us. By trusting God concerning, he died in the flesh, in a very truly human body, to die a death as the Son of God dying, a death that is big enough for all of humanity, for everyone who will believe God for it. Say, yes, God, I trust you for what you've done for me. Have you been reconciled to God? You see, this passage has nothing else to say to us. There's much here, but it has nothing else to say to us if we haven't been, if you haven't been reconciled to God. So it's got to start there, and I can't ignore that question before we go on. Verse 22b then gives the purpose of that peace that was made, the purpose of our restoration into relationship that formerly rebels now reconciled that we will in the future be presented with highest honors. I um, was going through a notebook just a couple days ago 
And the reason I was going through the notebook is we, we have this older little tablet computer. It's a really cool little Dell tablet computer. It's a, it's a full computer running Windows, but the size of a, of a small tablet. And so now and again, when you're traveling, it's really cool to be able to take that computer. But we haven't used it for years. Well, it was, it was like a 2013. It runs Windows 8. And some of you are thinking, why would you bother? Well, it's, it's a really cool computer if it would just turn on. The problem is we forgot the password. And so we have this old notebook from that era that we used to write down passwords in. I know some of you are thinking, well, you're not supposed to write down your password. Would you get real? How else do you remember passwords? Anyway, we tried all the ones we often use, and don't talk to me about reusing passwords. We tried all the ones, the, the usual suspects. I went through the notebook and came up with another idea and tried that and tried that. But as I was going through the notebook, not finding the password, I came across a letter from my dad. And it was a letter that he wrote to me probably a year or two before he died. He mentioned the, the seizures that he was having because he had this, he had this glioblastoma uh, tumor, and it was having its effect. And, uh, but in this letter, I had just graduated from Dallas Seminary, and I graduated, I think it's called Summa Cum Laude, which some understand as some come loudly. And uh, so that's, that's graduating with highest honors. And in this letter, he writes to me that, that how proud he was of me of that accomplishment. And I'd forgotten any of that. I'd forgotten that he, he recognized that, that he mentioned that, that he had praised me for it. And it just, it, it just renewed something again. And uh, that, that was, and he writes in his letter how that was hard work and it was worth doing. It was worth doing well and it mattered. And that's how our Father intends to present us. That's how our Lord intends to present us in the presentation to God with highest honors, holy blameless and above reproach or charge or claim or debt. The purpose is stated in, in Ephesians 1 and in Ephesians 5.27 as well, that his intention is to present you holy and blameless. That, that word blameless has the idea of, of a perfection in conduct. It has the idea, it's defined in, in Psalm 15 as, as one who does what is right, who's honest, he does not slander, he does no harm to others or insult. Psalm 18 describes it as one who lives according to God's covenant who lives in a new way as God has given it under his covenant. And of course, that fleshes out all the more under the new covenant and the indwelling spirit that we can be holy as our God is holy. That we are to be blameless, shining as lights in the midst of darkness. Blameless and above reproach, you see, are not merely our standard, or rather our standing before God, but blameless and above reproach or claim to be wholly devoted to God. This is the life that God has given us to live. 
It is a transformed life. It is the change that he is growing within us so that when he presents us that which has been credited to us in Jesus in his death and his rightness to our account, he now begins working into our lives in ways that we begin now, in ways that we will continue to be growing in until we stand before him. He intends to present us with such highest honors. And not only so, but preparing for that future, we continue on in the means that God has given us for his purpose. So, he says that, that, that God intends to present us holy and without blame and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from it. And that if concerns people. There's a lot of discussion back and forth about um, God is going to present you to himself. Let's read that as God is going to get you into heaven if you continue to believe like you have believed. Keep believing and you'll be fine. You stop believing, well, I guess you won't, you won't be there after all. I don't, think that's the whole, I don't think that's the point at all. I think the point here is God's purpose to present us and how he intends to present us. He who began a good work in you fully intends to complete it until the day of Jesus. And the means by which he completes it is our continuing in this faith that he has begun us on. It's continuing down the river on which he has set us toward his glorious picnic is not quite enough, is it, now? But we are moving in a direction. And God is carrying us, in fact, on his current. And yet he tells us to continue in it. The if is a particular kind of if in Greek. In the Greek, you can say if a couple of different ways. If you all stay through the whole sermon and don't walk out mad halfway through, I think you'll be encouraged. Now, when I said that if, I'm, I say it not expecting that half of you are going to walk out. I'll be surprised if more than one or two of you storm out mad halfway through the message, right? Probably not even that. Or I could say another kind of if. I could say, if this, the, the ceiling and these support beams were to collapse, we would all be killed or seriously injured. That's an if statement. But do I believe that's going to happen? That's an if statement that I don't think is going to happen. I have every confidence over the last 18 years that these, this roof will continue to stay there. And so, now some of you are worried about the roof. I'm sorry about that. No, no. It's, a, it's, it's, it's that third class conditional that is, that, that is, I forget if it's a second or a third now that I mention it, but it's a, it's a negative conditional that is not expected to happen. But if it did, well, that would be the result. This is the, is the first class conditional. The kind of conditional is if, as we assume to be true, if you stay, as I assume all of you will, that's what he's saying here. He's not raising doubt. In fact, then he adds one more word, if indeed. Most conditional statements in the New Testament don't have indeed added. Indeed is an emphatic particle. You don't really care about that. It's, it's, it's there for emphasis. It's, 
It strengthens the whole idea that, yes, you will continue. Yes, you will stay through the whole message as long as it is. If indeed you continue, he has every expectation that they're going to continue. Why is he even saying it then? This letter and the encouragement to continue are God's means using Paul for their good toward God's future. God fully intends for them to continue. And so God speaks to them through Paul and God sends them this letter and shares it with us so that they and we will continue. So this service of Paul, this ministry of Paul in writing this letter is God being faithful to continue the work which he had begun in them and in you until the day of of Jesus. But it does speak to us about the importance of continuing in the faith. It's not so much a qualification on assurance of their being reconciled and being with God for eternity. It's a qualification, an if statement on continuing on the pathway of God's preparing us for his presence. You see, the Christian life is not intended to be a stagnant pond. I got under the pond. Good. I'm in the pond. I'll just sit here and wait now. No, the the Christian life is a flowing river to a glorious destination. That we begin to experience already some of the goodness that will be ours into God's future. So we have the, the hope of God's promise set before us. We, we, we continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting. What are those three words meaning? The stable has the idea of having been grounded. It's a past. It's a past tense descriptive. It's having been grounded in the faith. Now you don't drift off from it, don't wander from it, and don't be distracted. Don't be taken away. Don't be moved off course. So there might be things that would try to distract you away. Don't do it. Keep to the right. The canoe trip. There, there, there might be ways that, 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 that you yourself would drift off and say, oh, well, that looks interesting. No, keep going. That's what he's telling him. You have been firmly grounded, so now keep going. Continue in the faith. Faith emphasizes it's, it, we're not a, it's not a list of do's and don'ts we're talking about here at all. It's the difference between the new covenant and the law. Faith in the gospel. The hope of the gospel, which that hope aspect emphasizes God's future. I'm on my way toward God's future. Now, continuing the faith and the hope of the gospel in this, contra- con- in this context is going to contrast with the baggage that, that folks in the church have. They have had baggage, we have baggage. Their baggage was a trust in Greek philosophy and different ideas about who God and then thus who could Jesus actually be. And on the Jewish side, it was a confidence in laws and rules and regulations. In fact, the the Jewish people had a tradition of the teachings of their rabbi was called fencing off the law. That the law says don't do this, and so they would build a fence around that. We don't want you to get too close and maybe accidentally 
transgress the law, so we're going to build a tradition that's further back from the law, a guardrail to keep you from possibly getting too close and, and transgressing the law. And then along the way, further rabbis with more knowledge would add another layer of protection, another fence further back from the law that would keep you from possibly getting close enough that you might break that law, transgress those rules. And so you have these extra fences that are put on because if you get too close, you know the whole slippery slope thing, right? You get close and you might just slide down and actually then transgress the law. But what that ends up doing is creating a confidence in these rules and traditions rather than, in fact, that, that seem to forget or replace the commandments of God, as Jesus said, with the traditions of men. So there's a danger there on either side, and he refocuses them again, he reminds them again, the faith of the gospel, the trust in God of this good news, and the hope, the hope of the gospel, which is God working in you by his power, the new life he has given you toward his future. We yield, we rely on him rather than relying on ourselves. As I mentioned, Paul in this letter now, telling this thing, urging them to continue, this is God's means for them to continue in the faith. This letter could have never been written. We could not have it in our Bible. Our Bibles would be a few pages shorter than in that case. But we would be lacking some of the the, um, most express description of the preeminence of Christ that they needed And we need. Because who Jesus is changes how we relate to them, to him in our life. That was true for Paul, wasn't it? You know, Paul, Paul was an up-and-coming Pharisee. He was on a a, a, a career path. He had a, a, a career upward plan. He was a young guy, just kind of of age to really be considered a Pharisee, and yet the old teachers around him, they looked to him. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees by his own description. He was going places. One day in the not-too-distant future, Saul, who later became Paul, would have a corner office on the western hill of Jerusalem, looking down across the valley over the Temple Mount. He had a wonderful future. But then one day, as he headed to Damascus to chase down Christians there also, he met the Lord. And there is when he said, Lord, preeminent Christ, what would you have me to do? And everything changed for Paul. And his, his, his previous path of advancing himself in Judaism, as he describes, beyond all of his contemporaries, all of that washes away. You know what's next in Paul's future? Being let down over the wall, where before he would triumphantly march in and out of city gates and let everybody see him, now he's smuggled out of the city of Damascus in a garbage basket. That's a long fall for Saul, who would become Paul, isn't it? How did that happen? And why does he, why does he, why does he endure that? Well, you see, Paul's sacrificial ministry for others now in the gospel is his own worshipful response 
to the grace toward him in salvation and God's strengthening for his apostleship. That this is his, his serving, his sacrifices. These are his worshipful response for the benefit of others. This is the, Lord, what would you have me to do? And so he urges them, his, what, he, what he's given to do is to urge others to continue in the faith of the gospel, to continue in the hope that they have in Christ. And that continuing is unpacked further then in the following verses. We continue in the gospel. We continue in our true hope by following Jesus in his afflictions. Verse 24 is a difficult verse. You have trouble with this verse. I had trouble with this verse for years. In fact, it was one of those I would quickly read by and not pay much attention to because I didn't like it. Until something turned, just, just turned about 90 degrees in my thinking, and it became one of my favorite verses. Verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, Paul says. Okay, I, that's good. And in my flesh, in my own body, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. I have no trouble with the suffering for your sake. I have no trouble filling up in my own flesh. I have no trouble that, that um, uh, the body of Christ is the church. What I have trouble with is that middle bit. What is it that could be lacking in Christ's afflictions? What is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Did Jesus not suffer enough? Is there something more that we need to contribute? That can't be right. I mean, remember the old hymn, Jesus paid most of it more to God I owe? That's not how it goes, is it? Jesus paid it all. He died once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. There is nothing that we contribute. In fact, we're warned in Romans 11 that if it's any bit of our works, then it is no longer by God's grace. Can't add even a little works that we must do to what God has already done for us. Otherwise, God's grace is no longer grace. We are saved by grace, not by any works that we would add. That can't be what it means. What does it mean? Well, the problem is what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Now, that can be read a lot of different ways, but we tend to default in our thinking to understanding that phrase as the afflictions that Jesus suffered. But actually, if you read it in Greek very literally, it would read the afflictions of Christ. And the afflictions of Christ could refer to the afflictions that Jesus was afflicted with, his own suffering on the cross, or it could mean the afflictions that were like his, a Christ kind. It could be what's called a genitive of kind. It could be talking about the kind of afflictions. These are a Jesus kind of suffering, which is to suffer for the sake of others. It could be a, a, a benefit construction. It could be that the sufferings of Christ would actually be translated sufferings for Christ for his body, which is the church. 
So what Paul, I think, is saying here is not something still needs to be added onto the sufferings that Jesus did. What he's saying is that in my body I am willing to fill up what is lacking in I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't change the reading at all there. What is, what, is, what, is, what is still needed, the lacking has the idea of something still needed, what is still needed in Christ-like sufferings or suffering for Christ for the benefit of his church. Either one of those say basically the same thing, that Paul is willing to suffer himself in the same manner in which Jesus suffered, willing to endure affliction himself, not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of others, that they may be blessed by God as a result of it. That's a Christ kind of affliction. Paul is willing to endure Christ-like suffering. Paul is willing to suffer for Christ in ways that benefits his church. He is willing to follow in the example of Jesus, willingly suffering for others' benefit. You see, giving ourselves for the benefit, giving ourselves for the sake of others in the gospel is the essence of service. That is what service or ministry is. He says in verse 25b, we make the word of God fully known by living it out sacrificially. The mystery of the gospel revealed in Jesus, well, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The mystery hidden before the ages, something that wasn't known before, now revealed to his saints, and to them God chose to make known how great among the nations are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is this glorious mystery? It is, he defines it here, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, I think there's a bit of a double entendre there. Certainly, a believer in Jesus has the Spirit of Christ. Romans chapter 8. If we do not have the Spirit of Christ, we do not belong to Him. The Spirit of the living God dwells within us, and Paul um, does this Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ thing in Romans chapter 8 that reminds us the Spirit of Christ dwells in our lives. And yet also, Christ in you, I think we, should, we, need, we ought to understand that as the Spirit of Christ within us, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. The reason he's called the Spirit of Christ is not because, you know, the whole Trinity thing, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and they're all kind of the same. No, they're not. They're distinct identities in one God. Well, why is he called the Spirit of Christ? I think, I think what Paul's doing there is that he is the Spirit of working Christ in us. That Christ in you is not merely that you're indwelt by God's Spirit. Christ in you is the life of Jesus is now lived in your life. Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Yeah, the Life of Christ seen in our lives. That's the glory of the gospel. It is a show and tell. It is Christ heard from us and Christ seen in us. And that's what Paul, Paul embodied in his ministry. He goes from corner office to garbage basket. 
Paul goes from city to city across the countryside, checking in in the synagogue, checking out of the jail. In town after town, he's run out of town. Why does he keep going? Why does he do this? For the sake of the body of Christ, the church, so that others might know and that others might grow. It's not merely just to proclaim the gospel as far and as wide as he can because he keeps circling back. Why does he keep going back to the Corinthians, for goodness sakes? I mean, so many pastors would have given up on them a long time ago. By the second letter, they'd have been done. There were four letters to the Corinthians and a couple of visits. Paul won't let them go because he's going to give, he is going to spend and be spent for their sakes. That's what's going on because that's what Jesus looks like. And that is what Jesus is working in him. And that is what Jesus is working in us. Okay, now let's go back to a service of worship. Let's go back to a congregation gathered together to worship the Lord together. And we think it starts when the singing starts. That's not when it starts. A congregation gathered to worship God together starts with all the sacrifices that individuals make beforehand so that that service can happen. And when we're settled into our own facility and things have have been put into place by somebody at some time in the past, we can just come and benefit from it. But when we move in a month to Prairie High School and we do our gathered Sunday services there, everybody gets a job. Everybody, you, you... You and I often don't realize the important part that we have to play to contribute. You say, well, I I, I should get it. I'm going to be doing the sermon most Sundays. But, But maybe you don't realize the part that you have to play when we come together and worship. And what role you play in encouraging someone else, being a blessing to somebody else, serving in some way, putting something in place. Well, we're going to have to do a whole lot more of that. We will not have a nursery unless we build it each Sunday. We will not have a pre-K unless it's put together. And then we can't leave it there. We've got to take it back apart and restore the classroom for so it's ready for those teachers and a nice thank you note for Monday morning. If we're going to do the things that we would normally do, the sound system goes in, the sound system comes back out. Everybody gets a job. And why would I do that? Why would I sign up for that? For others. Not for yourself. Not for what you're going to get out of it, although the thing you will get out of it is a little more of Jesus. A little more of his life in your life. But we will roll up our sleeves and we will do that, whether it's next Saturday in the cafe. By the way, I hope you got donuts or, 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 or donuts or muffins in the cafe. That was the end of an era today. The cafe is closed for construction. There are new things coming. God is doing a work in the cafe, at Prairie, among us. And all of us have a part in it. The building project is in this new phase where everybody has a job and we're all going to need to roll up our sleeves in new ways. So take Titus's call seriously. Sign up on that list. Be part of Move In, Move Out. Because without doing all of that, we won't, be, we won't have the facility to worship together. Our building is like that. We're starting something that we can't finish. We're starting something that we don't have the means to be able to finish and 
finish off the interior and move back into. We, we, we're starting something that God has provided the means to build it and to close it all in, to, to lay the foundations deep, to be, as this text said, firmly grounded and established, but without carpeting or floor coverings or plumbing fixtures or, any, or, or drywall on walls. See, well, maybe we could do that drywall ourselves. Well, come Saturday and find out. Have screw gun, we'll travel, right? Maybe there are some pieces we can, we can help with, but God intends to finish what he started. But starting a building like that, it's kind of like when we were called to Swaziland. We, we, we left the Air Force. We left our current employment, headed towards where God was calling us, not knowing how we would get there, not knowing how God would finish it. It's kind of like taking a road trip. You start out with a full tank of gas, but that's not enough to get you there. Or you really want to take an adventure of faith, take a road trip in an electric vehicle. Right? How are we going to have the means to get there? But we, the means to get there for us in this project that God has called us to together is to continue to sacrifice. And all of us have a play. You know my passion? All of us have a, have a role to play. My passion in the building project and the gathering of funds, my passion is not some of these miraculous large gifts that have come in that have gotten us to where we are now. My passion is as Paul describes in the body of Christ, when each part does its part for the building up together in love. Oh, just like Nehemiah's walls, some had a different part to play than others. Absolutely, I'm all for that. But I want everybody to have a part. Not for ourselves. Not for the nice place we're going to be in in the future. Not for the good classrooms we're going to have to teach in. Not for the nice office that Bob's going to have. No. If that's the motivation, God will catch up with us. But that we would give of ourselves for the next generation, that we would sacrifice for the good of others toward God's future. This is the mystery of Christ in us. The life of Christ gloriously lived out in sacrifice for others. You know, Certainly, Jesus came and lived a sinless life that qualified him to die in our place. But God's love was not best seen in Jesus' sinless life. Oh, you got glimpses of it. Touching a leper. Dining with tax collectors. Receiving a woman of questionable background. Well, you see glimpses of God's love and mercy and acceptance, certainly. But you know where you see God's love in Jesus? It's not in his life as much as in his death. So also, the life of Jesus is seen in our lives not by our best behavior, but in our sacrifice, in love for the sake of others. There it is, Christ's life in my life. Compare it in parenting. We're not, as parents, we don't have children. And, and, and probably you've asked yourself this, why did I do this? Why did I have these kids? You know, by the time they get about two, you're, you're asking yourself all kinds of questions. It's like a puppy at the, at the three-month point where you're still not potty drained. You're wondering, what have I done? With children, why did I have these kids? It wasn't because I needed to raise more farmhands. That may have been Oregon Trail days, but that's probably not the reason for you. 
You wanted to have kids because you wanted the joy of growing others up into a fullness of life and knowing what it was to have the joy of living life, walking with God. You wanted to grow them up for their success and for their enjoyment of life, not to serve you. You know, our work, our vocations are not using others around us in the office to pursue our own priorities and our own ambitions. But we work, we contribute something to the overall total effort for the good of others, whether it's for to providing for our own families, whether it's, it's working alongside and assisting and adding to what our colleagues are doing, whether it's for the benefit of the boss, the owner of the company, we do all that for the benefit of others in ways that will show Christ. So serving in the church is not just to fill a need. It's certainly not to get recognition, but it is a way to give myself for others that we might worship together. Children are cared for. Parents are strengthened. A child is taught God's truth because of your sacrifice. In this way, you see, serving is not for myself. Serving is not merely for others, but serving is my opportunity to give myself as an offering. It is my worship of the preeminent Christ, who is rightly above and comes before everything else in my priorities and affections. It is doing the answer to the question, Lord, what would you have me to do? Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would Lord, strengthen us to continue in faith along a path that is not merely a fun float to wherever we go. But Father, you call us, you do call us to be intentional about continuing in the faith to follow Jesus, to continue on the path that you have placed us upon toward presentation before you in your presence, holy and blameless and above reproach. Lord, you invite us then on that path into sacrifice. That we, in following our Savior, would give of ourselves in some real way for others around us. That we, we are called not to comfort, but rather to sacrifice, to give, to take on hardship ourselves for others' benefits. Lord, that's not within us naturally. That is Christ in us. And that's what we want. We want for the benefit of others that they would see something of Jesus in me. Oh Lord, do your work. Finish. Continue to complete that good work that you have begun in us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.